Welcome. You're listening to Under the Surface, a podcast where we have in-depth discussions on computer-aided techniques in drug discovery. Okay, everybody, welcome to this uh, episode of Under the Surface. I'm your host, Chris Williams. My co-host, Dave Thompson, is here with me. Hi, Chris. And our guest today is uh, Vanita Sood. Hi, Chris. Who is uh, joining us from from Boston remotely today. And uh, Vanita, can you tell us about uh, what you do, what your career is, and how you um, are in the drug discovery field? Yeah, I'm happy to. First of all, thanks for inviting me. And uh, secondly, just to um, get this, the disclaimers out of the way, I am here today um, representing only myself, although I am employed, which I think we'll be touching on the topic of employment soon. Um, but I've been in the field of drug discovery for about 15 years now. So I had actually trained as a molecular biologist and then went on to do a postdoc in um, David Baker's lab, uh, starting off as an experimental protein engineer, but then, you know, getting very interested in the computational side and learning how to do that. Uh, and then joined EMD Serono, uh, business of Merck KGA Darmstadt, Germany, fresh out of a postdoc. And um, so I was at EMD for about 14 years. And uh, through the years, I started off as an individual contributor doing computational antibody engineering and um, eventually started leading uh, leading the group uh, for computational antibody engineering and wet lab characterization, and then got pulled into the small molecule world, computational chemistry and structural biology. And in the last couple of years at EMD was also had a great opportunity to lead the DMPK department for both small molecules and large molecules. So, um, Although I'm not representing my former employer at all, I have a lot to thank them for. They uh, really gave me an amazing training in drug discovery on all aspects of um, how you make a molecule into a great drug. And currently, I'm at a startup, which is super exciting. So also the last couple of years at EMD Serono, I would say even more than a couple of years, uh, that company was fairly at the vanguard of AI-driven drug discovery, and we'd been uh, working in the field quite a bit and uh, was really enjoying that. And uh, part of the reason why I made the jump to startup was to focus on AI drug discovery um, full-time. So Wait, me, sorry, Vanita. Yeah. Didn't mean to interrupt. Um, is that a hot topic at the minute then, AI and drug discovery? I haven't yeah, seen I haven't anything in that. that. No, I haven't heard of that. Tell us more. It, it is a very hot topic, absolutely. Oh. And you know, when when we started working on it, like in 2015, it was something that was definitely becoming hotter and hotter. But there was a lot of skepticism, and right now in 2023, what I feel—I don't know what you guys feel—but I feel like. We've turned, uh, we've kind of gone over this sort of edge where people, it's less skepticism and more enthusiasm at the moment. So it's still hot and still controversial, but I think people are are really, really getting into it now. I don't know, I so, sort of feel the opposite. There was a bit of uh, enthusiasm and some skepticism has risen. But I, I'm thinking more from the small molecule perspective as well, you know? And also perhaps uh, um, realms of applications, like AI is yeah. good for certain things and maybe not other things. 
So has, has that been your experience? Yes. First of all, 100% agree. It's not that uh, everybody's on the bandwagon right now. I think right now what we're experiencing is healthy skepticism. So I do think that we're still somehow in the infancy of AI drug discovery. So a lot of people, and and um, Pat Walters has a great blog. He, he's touched on this. Derek Lowe has touched on this, on the small molecule world. And I think they're asking the right questions. And poking their fingers at the right sort of weak points. Um, that being said, it varies. You're saying, you know, the domain of apl applicability, the realm in which you're applying it, knowing what the limits are, all of this kind of informs whether you're doing it well or, you know, being over-enthusiastic. But there's a, there is one difference in the protein world, and that, of course, is AlphaFold, right? So that was just such, it was not just about enthusiasm and propaganda. I mean, that was a real, real leap forward, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. um, I want to pump the brakes. I know I'm always the person that does this, but we get these guests on and they're super accomplished and they humbly describe their uh, their journeys of, of a while uh, in just a couple sentences and hide all the cool stuff they did. So before we jump to the punchline and talk more about AI, which apparently is a big deal at the moment, um, I wondered, could we kind of go back to the beginning and maybe talk about your jump from experiments? So I believe you did an experimental PhD focusing on the ribosome. Is that true? Yeah. Yes. That and then you, the, and, and well, cause I, I read you, I read you. A column for uh, protein science. <laughs> that was very nice. Oh, the protein society rather. And, um, and uh, and then you jumped into Professor Baker's lab to do, uh, I guess, initially experimental stuff, but then computational stuff. So that's a that's a big jump. Like, could you? And I think you even have a sentence in that in that column where you basically say quite openly, which I, I dug because I have a sort of similar progression through my career that you really didn't think about it much. It was like a thing you just did. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I, I didn't think about it in the sense that I hadn't plotted it out, like this exactly. is going to be lead me to a career in drug discovery. And oh my gosh, there's like a dearth of computational people in drug discovery, especially in the protein area. I think computational chemistry has got a longer history and medicinal chemists have been working with the computational chemists for much longer. So I definitely, I didn't even think I was going to go to industry, you know, but that being said, I do want to make one point. I, although I hadn't like plotted it out that way, it doesn't mean I wasn't scared to, <laughs> to go from a very wet lab, you know, focusing on RNA to like, you know, a pretty big change. So I was definitely scared. And but I'm glad that I didn't let that stop me. And I had, you know, good mentors who encouraged me to just say, like, don't worry, you know, you could take the easy path, stay in RNA, stay with what you know. Um, but you, you can do it. And I think that was the thing is just, it, even if I hadn't stayed in computational protein design, which I did because I love it, but even if I hadn't, just the fact that of switching fields is a, it's a mind opening experience yeah. and it gives you a different perspective on things. I got such an amazing training from my PhD advisor, but I think in order to really leverage that high quality training, I needed to have my mind opened a little bit, you know, and that's, that's what that switch did. Yeah. I think there's such a lot to be said for maybe at the end of a, a PhD, almost having the people around you that you, whose counsel you trust and value, encouraging them, encourage, having them encourage you rather to do something 
different, right? Like, I guess it would be very easy to continue going down that path of dotting I's and crossing T's and getting ever more specialized in the thing that you've, you know, better than anyone else in the world yeah. and becoming a professor. But then there's something just <laughs> so invigorating about doing something adjacent, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's super, super exciting. Yeah. And just one other thing to say, like having those people encourage you also keep them around, you know, because when you do switch fields, there will be points where you're like, oh my God, this is so hard. Am I ever going to learn it? Am I ever going to achieve the level of expertise that I'd already achieved in my old? So having those people, you know, stay kind of in touch to give you the encouragement as you go along is really important, I think. I suspect that most pharma companies have this where you have these groups of experts who are really good in their own field but also understand teamwork because drug discovery is a team sport. So anyway, so I had that and I was also lucky to have a number of really excellent managers who were very, very patient with me. You can imagine, you know, uh, fresh out of an academic postdoc, completely wet behind the ears, no idea about drug discovery. Like I had no clue that there was anything really more to say other than, you know, can you design an interaction? No, it's like, you gotta have, think about clearance, half-life and toxicity and all these other things, regulatory, no clue. You know, and that was another <laughs> instance where I kind of just jumped into it and said, I'm just going to do this and hope I'll be fine. Hope I'll learn. And yeah, having those people around was amazing. And, you know, most people were very kind um, and took an amazing amount of time to help me learn. Others did not like me very much, but still were very kind and still mentored me. And you know why? Because they wanted me to perform well on their teams, right? They they relied on me and I relied on them. So it was an, in their interest to help me become a better drug hunter, you know? And let's be clear, the personal differences were that I was annoying because I was young and immature, but I'm, I'm joking, of course. Well, well you no, know, it's, I, I, it's, I've it's... been that person, so I completely <laughs> understand uh, understand where you're coming from. Um, but you, you, you jumped ahead again quickly. I just want to, so you went from Professor Baker's lab into industry with oh. that. Was that a directed move? Was that what you yeah. did enough computational work in Professor Baker's lab? You were like, you know what? I want to go do this and I want to go do it in industry, no longer in academia. Exactly. Yeah. So I just and had did you, that. Did you find the role or did the role find you? Uh, that one actually was through a, a Baker lab connection. This is another thing is like always be nice to people, even if you don't know that they're going to help you later. Uh, even if we, you're annoying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had um, somebody from EMD Serono had come and sort of done a sort of mini sabbatical or like, you know, a stage or whatever. He came to the Baker lab for a few months just to learn Rosetta and, you know, brush up. And I think he was just sitting nearby me in the lab. So he asked me a couple of questions. I ended up helping him a little bit. By then I was like later in my postdoc. So I was quite senior and a bit better at Rosetta than when I first started. So I hardly remembered even helping him, but he remembered that I helped mm -hmm. him. So then when I was looking for a job, David Baker, my, my advisor was like, oh yeah, you should ask uh, Jonathan. And, and sure enough, they were looking. And so it was, you know, at least through that connection that I got the interview. So yeah. And, and yes, so then I joined directly out of the postdoc. Uh, and it was a perfect job for me because 
Um, it was, they, the company at that time had some really good computational antibody engineers in uh, Geneva, but none in Billerica, in the US side. Um, they had excellent computational chemists that I had met you around mm. that time because yep. you were coming to visit the comp chemist. Yeah. And so it was, it was very good because I got to bring in a skill set that they didn't have at that site at that point in time. And uh, I also lucked into a very good manager who didn't really know much about computational antibody engineering, but was super supportive. And then there was this other guy who was not my manager, but he was a really brilliant protein engineer. He was he was amazing. He always had loads of ideas. And he was like, oh, there's a computational person here. Let me talk to her. Okay, Vanita, can you try this? Can you do that? And he just kept coming up with ideas. So so that was great because now I had a partner where like he didn't know what computation was uh good for. Actually, what I would I should put it the other way. He didn't know what the limits were. So you know, like I had sometimes I had people asking me like, okay, so we have this antibody and it, you know, it works really well, but it doesn't bind to the mouse homologue. So, you know, this is an issue mm. because you need to have that binding so that you can do the mouse studies. Can you just redesign it and make it bind to the mouse homologue? And I was like, yeah, sure. Give me the co-crystal structure and I'll redesign <laughs> it. Like, what are you talking about? What co-crystal, you know, here's the sequence. <laughs> <laughs> and go fix it for us. So there was like a learning yeah. process on both sides. But having people like um, my manager, who's just like, hey, just do this. You know, I have no idea if it's too easy or too hard, but you tell me. And then people who are just like, yeah, like, I don't know, like this computational stuff sounds cool. So let's just see what we can do with it. That kind of let me sort of educate them while I was getting educated on what was useful for um, biologics engineering. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, some some things can be approached computationally quite well. Other things, you don't really have much hope in hell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And remember, this was also 2008, so well before uh, the machine learning, deep learning, AI revolution, and AlphaFold mm -hmm. and all that. So it was classical biophysics based engineering. Yeah. 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 Which there's still something to be said for that. Still a lot to be said for physics based. Physics based methods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe you know. When we come into like data, uh, the data that co goes into our artificial intelligence, you know, to what extent is that data going to be physics based, experiment based? One of the first things that we have to recognize, um, and again, this is my opinion, but a lot of the drug discovery data that we have is super high quality and really good for bringing molecules one at a time to clinic but it's not particularly suitable for machine learning because it's not, it's not comparable from one program to the other. It's not normalized. It's not high volume enough. Um, I, I don't know, like I'm actually not a deep AI expert. I like to surround myself with the deep AI experts, but I, I like to think that with all the progress that we're seeing on the algorithm side, that the the bar or the criteria for what volume of data is sufficient is is probably going to come down. Oh, uh, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I I think so. I don't know, but I think so. I think it's at least reasonable to assume that that's that could happen. You know, it's plausible. Let's say. Yeah. So, but still, to kind of accelerate the AI revolution, 
we need to roll up our sleeves and actually generate the data for the machine learning. You can't just say, well, we're just going to, pharma has so much data, we're just going to use that. Okay. I don't think it's going to be enough, you know? Yeah, that that does bring up a, a good a good point too. Is that you know uh, there's lots of data, but farmer doesn't necessarily share it. And some oh. people have suggested you know with you know uh, sort of hiding the data in some way, so we don't know the actual compounds. Yes. But at least you have some of the response, so you've got these uh, consistent um, or consistent data set across different pharma companies to go and build these models. You know, yes. uh, leveraging this large amount of data, but also this idea of going to um, create data for the specific purpose of feeding it into machine learning, right? We, had, uh, we don't do that necessarily in computational chemistry so much. We, we do experiments. The experimental result is used for other things, but it's, it may be used into our QSO models, but it's not directly generated specifically for that. So yeah. if we were to generate data with the idea that this data has to be um, put into machine learning, we'd be maybe more focused on the consistency and transferability Rather than the the particularly uh, the peculiarities of each method towards yeah. a certain uh, endpoint and extra precision at that endpoint. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And there's one other thing that I would add. And by the way, it's the same in the biologics world. You don't usually generate data just for the sake of training a model. But in both biologics and computational chemistry, I think if you did do that, you could have the transferability, the consistency, all of that, you could set that. Plus, you could deliberately explore bits of chemical or sequence space respectively that aren't in your lead series, that aren't going to get you mm. faster to your IND candidate and your development candidate, you know? And that's, I think, going to be a key because maybe even more so in small molecules than in biologics, but, you know, if we want the AI to be able to do something that the chemist or the protein engineer couldn't have done themselves, like we have to train it on something that we're not doing already, right? Like yeah. For the and project. Yeah. And, and you, you say maybe... almost sounds a bit paradoxical, right? In order for the machine to learn something that it's never been exposed to, we have to do something that we've never done previously. Like, isn't that a bit chicken and egg? Uh... Well, you're making it sound like I just made a nonsensical statement. <laughs> no, no, it's it's. I, I I was I I was. I don't know. I didn't I didn't a... take it that way, but expand <laughs> on how you saw it, Dave. Well, we we had a conversation recently with someone for 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 one, for one of the upcoming podcast episodes, and 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 we got talking about domains of applicability, and we got talking about I I I've been thinking about this need, or not a need, maybe, but a possibility for. A marketplace wherein we could openly share um, blinded data in some way. Like I felt that there must be some value to all of this information because because companies, whether you make drugs or not, right, the activities we're engaged in are all data points that could potentially be fed into a giant algorithm that could be used to predict something, right? Whether you work for Starbucks or mm -hmm. Subway or whatever, you right. And on the creepy end of the scale, that looks like employee. Um, uh, you know, uh, surveillance capitalism focused on the employee and in drug discovery. And for us, it looks like, well, maybe there's a way that we can find new novel therapeutic treatments and whatnot. But if you think about all the companies that are currently working in drug discovery, we're only really targeting an incredibly small biological space 
Yeah. And, 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 and even smaller chemical space. Yeah. So even if you all did share this information, we are still only in this infinitesimally small region of biological and chemical space, right? So, the, the, so at, at that scale, all models are local. Every single model we generate will yeah. be a local model. So my point is, how would you get a truly novel exploration of biological or chemical space from a machine perspective if yeah. we ourselves aren't even exploring in those areas, right? How are we going right. to generate data to explore that? Now I understand your point. Okay, so so I, I I agree with the point, but I think the distinction I make is there's probably two reasons why we're not exploring outside of what we're already doing. And one is like maybe that chemical space is not accessible to us with the knowledge that we have of chemistry yeah. right now. So I think sure. that's what you're referring to. And that, okay, I don't disagree with you. So actual chemistry has to happen and be invented in order to get us there. But the other reason, and this is, again, this is coming from my own experience working in drug discovery. There sometimes there just isn't there. You have the, the technical ability to explore a different part of chemical space, but there just isn't time because yeah. you've got a mm. lead and it's potent and it looks developable and you've got to put all your resources on that. And every time, so this is like a philosophical thing. I do not believe that when, if you try to tag on a machine learning goal onto a discovery project team, the machine learning will never win. The patient will always win mm -hmm. because drug hunters want to help patients. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's very yeah. hard sell to say, ah, but if you spend a little more money and effort on this thing that isn't going to help your cancer patient, you know, in nine months from now, but it will help so many more patients because it's going to cre help create this machine learning engine that will accelerate our ability, then like people will be like, yeah, Vanita, we believe you, but we don't have time for that. We got to help this patient now. We got to help this cancer now or this mm -hmm. auto now, right? So it's that's the sort of the other thing is like, it's it, the data will always sort of be bent towards the main purpose of the team generating it. So unless we have teams that are dedicated to like, my goal is to make a better machine learning algorithm. I don't think we'll get there. We, oh, and I think that's the, the context within which you're working is yeah. not, you're not, you're not a software company, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you, the product and, you are building is going to be yeah. realized in physical space and it's going to be given to a person or people uh, to treat a disease. Um, mm. so I think that's a wholly, wholly appropriate. You're not here to generate data to make an algorithm better. That just maybe happens. Right. Right. And nothing ever happens if it's going to be like, maybe it'll happen by accident for free mm. as an ad and things, you know, big changes leaps forward. Don't happen because, you know, somebody did a side project. They happen because somebody put the time and effort and made it their main project. Well, I, I, I will challenge you there, actually. There's a pretty okay. robust literature on serendipity of research and development. So yes. uh, there's there's actually plenty of examples where side projects, like uh, Post-it notes were a side project that evolved over two two decades, I think, at 3M and became a thing, right? And and there's plenty of examples in the, in the, in the yeah. pharmaceutical space as well. Well, um, I think, so. think that the Post-it was a mistake. I think it was supposed to be a super glue, and <laughs> then they, uh, they shelved it, and then... Uh, a few years later, someone was having his, his, his bookmark sticking too much to the page. So he they yeah. revived it and they, they had it, two different layers, the, the sticky the, layer the and the non-sticky layer. Exactly. The commercial team were like, we need a, a slightly adhesive adhesive. 
But I mean, yeah. I think, and that's true about serendipity, Dave, but, you know, what I was talking more about was the, the, the concentrated effort to generate data for simulations, right? And as Vinita said, we're probably not going to do that in drug discovery projects anytime soon. But they do do it in other fields like uh, engineering and designing airplanes. They design all these things on computers, but they get the parameters for their models with wind tunnels and very specifically designed experiments to derive high-quality parameters to put into simulations. Yeah, so exactly. You're preaching to the choir here, and that also kind of leads me to make another point. I love the airplane sort of comparison, you know, those aeronautical engineers. Not only are they sort of investing in generating the data to create better simulations, uh, but they have another advantage over us in the drug hunting world. They can generate that data without using humans. Right, they use their craft mm -hmm. stuff, yes, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, I think that's another barrier that we will. I believe we will overcome this barrier, but it's a challenge for us in drug discovery when we want to apply machine learning, because I could probably, like in in many pharma contexts now, they're all digitalizing. We all sort of believe this is a future. And I just got over saying like a drug discovery team will never prioritize that. They're always going to prioritize their development candidate. And that's true. But most pharma companies are prioritizing some budget and time. And you can use that to generate uh, bespoke data. At my old company, we had a wonderful collaboration with the Broad Institute um, to generate all this phenotypic data with known compounds as well as CRISPR. This was wonderful. So there is budget and effort is being put into these sorts of things. But the question is, is it relevant? And for some assays, it is. But then again, as I'm speaking as a biologics person, immunogenicity, it's a major developability parameter for biologics. You cannot use the clinical data because it is not generated for machine learning. And it's too low volume and it's too heterogeneous and the assays used to collect it are too heterogeneous. And there's hardly any preclinical model that, you know, is truly predictive. Mm -hmm. So you can get very good, you're on IEDB, uh, and you can get very good machine learning models for peptide binding or peptide elution from class 2 MHC. And that's great because, you know, that is a piece of the immunogenicity process, but it's one step in immunogenicity. Mm -hmm. You cannot use an in vivo model even. Even if I could scale in vivo models, I can't use them for an immunogenicity because it's 100% specific to species, right? Mm -hmm. And then the gold standard is to use human cells. But those assays, have you ever looked at those assays? They are so variable. Now, there is predictive value. Mm -hmm. And a, a trained DMPK will look at that data and they will make judgments about how to, you know, how to move the molecule forward or which molecule to move forward. But you can't. You can't, first of all, they're super expensive. You can't do them for hundreds and thousands of molecules. Mm. And, you know, if you have the budget, you're lucky to be able to do them on like five molecules at a time or 10 molecules at a time. And then even if you had that magical budget, these, the human cells are so, it's biology, man. It's so yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's back to the, one of the challenges, you know, yeah. with, with, with AI and drug discovery is the variability of the data and, I want to go back to the point you said a a, a trained DM, DMPK. You're talking about a human being, right? Yes. Yeah. So, a human, so a human being can look at this data and and glean some sort of pattern mm -hmm. that for some reason machine learning can't. Well, yet, 
That's right. Good. Yeah. That's is because I mean yeah. it's it's all we're we're pattern recognition machines. Yes. As our as as is AR, right? Yeah. So um that trained DMK PK person, uh, like what what is in their experience to make that you know, there's some data points in there that this is maybe part of the data we need. Some of the yeah. like human experience, yes. how can we sort of put that and quantify that and add it to the AI, right? Yeah. It's it's straightforward with engineering parameters. It stresses okay. strains and things, but I think with with biology, we're going to start to have to add a lot more fuzzy types of information that you know uh, are more qualitative in sense because we have these huge error bars. You know, when something's got a huge error bar, it becomes almost qualitative and long, long quantitative. So, in developing machine learning algorithms, maybe dealing with you know sparse data and very fuzzy data and erroneous data is the the algorithmic way forward, and and then the other way forward would be in terms of our experiments, as you say, pharmaceutical companies collect all the data all the time, right? Yeah. And then conditions, et cetera, you know, things that were in lab notebooks, no, they're in computers now. Um, so you can, eventually you can search them if you need to, right? Yeah. Eventually when the machine's big enough, the uh, AI machine's big enough to go and, you know, mine through all this data, you know, might find, you know, the correlation had to do with the salt concentration or something that was never recorded before. Right in. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's my big worry yeah. too, is yeah. like, you know, relying on when the machine gets big enough and smart enough, it'll be able to, you know, crawl through all of that heterogeneous data and find those patterns. And I, then it'll return, you know, the best drugs we find are when John comes in on a Wednesday wearing a tweed jacket, right? Like these, like, these spurious relationships between these deep data. Yeah, um, well, it could be that, or it could be that John was the one who actually documented his ELN. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and yeah. and that's the thing is like again, I have I have a lot of respect for scientists working in pharma. Um, it, you know, the the level of documentation is high. You know, compared to academia, and I love academia. You need academia for innovation, right? But the consistency and being systematic about things, it's it's at a very good. But there's it's still not perfect. Like I think mm -hmm. when you go when you go with the machine learning lens and you start looking at the data and the metadata, first of all, it's very hard to curate because it's pretty free form. Even like mm -hmm. groups that tend to use templates, it's still, there's a lot of free form, right? So that's a lot of manual yeah. curation you're going to do. And then you, you realize like, oh, there's missing information here. These guys are really good scientists. They do document well, but somehow it's not enough usually, you know? You know, calling through that data. Oh, oh, it was, I think it was Chris, it was you. You had said the expert. And when, what does that human understand? I think one of the things that we humans do is we kind of calibrate what's important and what's not by the level of labeling, right? So, like that individual DMPK is looking at the assay and he or she knows that, oh, you know, this hasn't been HLA genotyped. So, I can ignore this variability because it's probably due to genotypes. But the, the algorithm may not know that. And so then mm -hmm. it's like, oh, it's, it's easy. We can do genotyping. It's pretty quick and cheap. So why don't we just do this for all the PBNCs and start labeling stuff? But then you realize, oh, all that backlog of T-cell assays, that wasn't labeled. You know, so and that's yeah. where I keep coming mm -hmm. back. You know what? Just just roll up your sleeves, get yeah. the budget, and generate yeah. a spoke. Decide ahead of time. What well, I think that's gonna be <clears throat> yeah. I was gonna say, I think that's gonna become much more the norm, right? I've I've been reading recently about this view on companies is just it doesn't matter what field, but companies themselves are just data producing fields. 
Yeah. I just I do a thing, I make data. I also happen to make services or products that I sell to in a marketplace. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things I do is I generate data yeah. and that data is labeled and I can do something with it or someone else can maybe do something with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Vanita, what, what are your thoughts on on the importance of, if any, of interpretability? I, 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 so I've taken this trove of data. I've built a model. The model's predictive. Do, do, I, do I care about interpretability of my model or is it enough just that it's predictive? So... I think, (laughs) uh, I know that there's like two camps here, right? But um, I would say it depends. I think to a certain extent, if something works consistently all the time and to a really high level, then yes, I guess it doesn't really matter, you know, what's inside that black box. But I personally, I I need to know what's inside that black box because you know what? Nothing ever works that consistently and that perfectly. So in order to debug it, in order to make it better, in order to know, you know, bring back that human judgment, should I be using this? Like, you know, uh, how much should I be using this? How much should I be relying on this? I think you need, it always comes down to mechanism. I don't know. In that sense, I'm old school. And I was trained first as a molecular biologist and ribozymologist, and you need to understand mechanism. And I just think biology is too complicated. If you don't keep that always in mind, you are going to end up in trouble, I think. And you can't end up in trouble when you're trying to put make molecules that you're going to put into humans, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, I guess an example would be, say, a model of a blood-brain barrier penetration, right? The, the yeah. AI model's got a, uh, it predicts the, the penetration, but it won't tell you, is it passive? Is it active transport? Right. Or, or And what parts of the molecule are contributing to the active or the passive transport? So you could maybe understand um, an other impact other than the uh, the brain penetration, right? If something yeah. is passive transport at its implications, active transport may have other implications. So that's maybe where the interpretability of the model is um, yeah. lacking. Well, the model is lacking because it d- doesn't give you the reasons why it made this decision. Right. And then then you're kind of left with like, well, what's the right follow-up experiments to do? So I think maybe it also depends. Like if it's easy to do the follow-up experiments and understand retroactively, you know, what's going on, maybe that's good enough. So probably the interpretability probably depends how important it is on what you're trying to do and what stage you're at. I don't think there's a there's a right or wrong answer to this. Um, like you said, I think there's 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 two camps. Um and uh if you're lucky enough to have uh, interpretable enough features and a model that you can intuit what's going on given the interactions of these features, then then that's that's magical, right? That's that's mm-hmm. super and, and and great. And if you can't, and maybe you're at a stage in the project where time is of the essence, and if it is predictive, then uh, who cares, right? Yeah, well, I yeah. think I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you finished up at EMD, and then you jumped to uh, this startup or a previous startup? Just this one. I've been here about a year. Yeah. Just this one. My first and only startup. startup. (laughs) Well, I don't say only. Well, you're only for now, right? Only because we're going to be so wildly successful. Okay. (laughs) Well, so so that's that's the thing, right? So so you described your your initial experiences at EMD. And one thing I've always very much enjoyed about my own experience in the pharmaceutical industry was it's just tens of thousands of people all working with you in the service of a thing. And that is just such a rich environment for learning. Right. That's, that's, that's what I kind of heard from your description of your mentors and your, you know, joining. Um, 
that's different when you're in a startup. That's different when you're in a smaller organization because there's just less opportunity to move up and down, right? Um, especially not when you're a senior leader like yourself, right? You're at the pointy end of the witch. Um, so <laughs> what are you doing? Like, how are you cultivating that sense of learning, both as kind of a cultural norm that you want your company to grow into, but also for yourself? Like, how are you staying on top of things? So actually, you kind of hit the nail on the head about sort of the difference in environment. Um, I do miss having those tens of thousands of people around, quite frankly, because it was nice to be like, oh, uh, I'm wondering about this. It's not something I'm super well informed on. I'm just going to walk down the hall or, you know, ping somebody on Teams and, and, and ask and all that expertise was right there, right? So it is different in a startup. So there's a couple of things. One, I will say there's a lot of expertise in terms of the business side that, mm -hmm. um, of course, we had a BD and a venture capital arm in our pharmas and all that, but that wasn't something that your typical R&D scientist gets too exposed to, or at least, you know, also you don't have time to. So now I'm still on the learning curve and I'm learning so much. And that's, you know, I think all scientists, we all love like continual learning. So that's, that's been excellent. Um, and then the other thing is like having been, and that's, that's the other sort of fringe benefit of being senior aside from the gray hair is, you know, I've been in the industry for a long time. So my network is big, you know? Mm -hmm. So what I found is that I can just ping somebody on LinkedIn or send them a quick text message and 99% of the time, they're willing to hop on the phone and answer a few questions for me, which also comes back to what I was saying earlier, just like always, always yeah, help people who ask you for help yeah. because it will come yeah. back to you. Yeah. yeah. So and that's yeah. the other thing is like, we were alluding to this when we were talking about sharing data and how can we share data blinded and all this because pharma companies are so competitive with each other with the IP, but in one way, I've always found pharma people are not competitive in terms of collegiality, it it's, doesn't matter which company you work for. People are so collegial and always helping each other. Oh, I completely agree with that. And I think if it wasn't for the IP, we'd all be sharing our compounds. Because <laughs> exactly. uh, and, and only just to show off our work. Look at this thing I made. Look how good it is, right? Just a matter of convincing uh, the business people to share the data more. No, I was going to say, that's an interesting point, right? Let's, let's say we're trying to build this, this, this great big machine learning algorithm. We're feeding all of the data in our company, or at least all the scientific data into, uh, we're generating from our experiments into our model. And, and, and yet programs die for commercial reasons or for, you know, uh, political reasons, even, um, could be a crowded space. Not political. Well, yeah. Well, uh, well, no, I know. But, uh, I mean, well, yes. So that, that choice of language yeah. is 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 pointed, right? We had this chap at the UGM uh, earlier this year who who gave a fabulous uh, SAR story. I love these stories we hear at um, our by design events or by at the UGM where you have someone, a computational chemist or a medicinal chemist or a structural biologist, and they talk about their journey through the program, runs for oftentimes many many years, and then this poor chap at the end was like, yeah, and then they closed the uh, project for strategic reasons. Like, how do we do we do we have to include that stuff in these in these models for our our successful Oh, I, I would almost want to. Like, yeah. that, would, that would be like these. This is you know uh, lost data. If I've got a a, a a you know a series I've stopped, is there some way I can sort of transfer that data and maybe recoup some losses? 
Mm. Right now, I don't know. If I'm, I'm imagining some weird consortium that keeps all the data and pays I don't for think that that's bad data. A weird idea. I think a consortium on this is a great idea. And those terminated projects, whether they terminated for strategic reasons or you know because there was like some some something that killed it in terms of the efficacy or safety or whatever. Yeah. That's still valuable data, right? Data about exactly. what's bad. Yeah, and yeah. And this might, and you know, the thing is like, this might actually be, okay, I'm, I'm still going to declare that I think the best data for machine learning will be data that we generate for the machine learning. I think it's going to be hard to use this data, labeling heterogeneity, we've already went over that. But one thing might be easier if it's a terminated project. That's usually when the scientist gets a chance to publish their work, present it at the mm -hmm. UGM. You know, sometimes companies often will, um, yeah, you can repurpose it, you can outlicense the compound. But even if it's not a therapeutic level compound, a lot of companies will donate that to the public domain. This is a tool compound, you know, mm -hmm. and then they put it out there because we do in pharma, we do also have a sense of community. And you know, helping the whole community advance. And one way to do that is putting those those tool compounds out into the public domain. So some innovative academic scientist or somebody else in another company can use it and get further, right? So so that and we can use the data from machine data learning. Valuable, right? The same motivation and also the same lower barrier, legal barrier, IP barrier might operate in favor of putting it out into some kind of shared database. Yeah, that definitely would be a way to get more data into the, and I think at that point too, because the data would be shared by everybody, you know, um, the curation would probably, we'd get more ex curation experience. Yeah, yeah, I know. But you know, I'm, I'm, nobody can see this on the podcast. I'm smirking though. And the reason I'm smirking is we'll all sit there looking at it and saying, that's terrible. It needs to be curated. Will you do it, Chris? Yeah, yeah well, yes, no. Chris will be like, Dave, you do it. Dave will be like, Johanna, you do it. Nobody wants to curate data. It's it's the one of the first things I learned you know, working at CCGs. You come out of your PhD and you start working in a company and going in and typing all the numbers in a data table. Like That sounds like monkey work. But as, as a programmer, support scientist, you know, I got to do that. And after a while, you kind of get good at it. Um, but you're right. It's, 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 it's seems like very trivial work. But because there are problems with the data or there could be mistakes, a very experienced person has to be the person entering it. Yeah, exactly. And so we're all like, oh, can't there be like an AI that would just curate it for us? But yeah. it's a little bit chicken and egg, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you ever had this experience where you were curating? Because, you know, like as much as we all hate curating it, sometimes the goal is motivating enough that you just, you're like, okay, I'm just going to do this. You sit down oh, yeah. with it and you get like 80% through. And then as you're 80% through, because you've curated it so nicely, your human brain starts to see a pattern and you're like, oh, something interesting here. Oh, I should add another label. And then then you find yourself, right? There's this fabulous uh, poet, Mary Oliver, who wrote, um, uh, attention is the beginning of devotion. Right. I have this actually scrawled on my, she was a naturist. She lived out in the woods somewhere and she just wrote cool poems about nature. And her point was, all you have to do is turn up and pay attention. I um, love that. And yeah. you know, my mother-in-law has given me so many Mary Oliver books of poems that I've never Yeah, I think I might actually crack one open now. <laughs> yeah. She's a, she's a, she's a phenomenal writer for sure. And, and she writes about human attention, which is, a thing that given AI driven media generation and the world we, we live in now, attention, I'm fairly certain is the thing that will differentiate good scientists from great scientists, which goes back to Chris's point about 
I'm curating a bunch of data and I have to pay attention to it. I can't, I can't have my phone on. I can't be distracted by, you know, a, a ping from my phone. I can't, I have to be thoughtful about it. I have to be, I have to be thinking about it. I have to be present. I think that's critical. I, I completely agree. And there's something else you said at the beginning of that, that there's, there's nothing in the corporate environment that prevents somebody from taking serendipitous uh, observation and carrying that forward. And you're right. I completely agree with you, but I would go a step further. And we were talking about mentors and, you know, network mm -hmm. and all of that. I think like bring them in to that excitement because uh, nobody's going to prevent you, but in order to give you the space and the time, because it's so busy when you're in drug discovery, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. Um, the yeah, find that group of people for whom you can bring those wackadoodle ideas, and yeah. and that they will create that space for you, and they will support you to create that space. And maybe they'll do it for because they're excited by the idea. Maybe they'll do it because they're excited about working with you. Maybe they'll do it because they do think it's the next big thing. And maybe they'll do it just because if you're successful, they'll be successful. And that sounds a little, it'll be probably some combination of all those things. Yeah, I think it will be a combination of all of those things. But I think one of the biggest things will be they'll do it because you, whoever you are is the one asking and you've sort of spent the time building up your credentials and your reputation yeah. and you've kind of given in so then don't be afraid to ask for the support because you know that yeah. you've put in the effort to help others and they will support you when you need that yeah, support. Yeah. when when you've kind of proven yourself you'll be surprised at how much leeway you have but you do have to do that first you gotta you know you have to work for it. We've we've got AI and, and algorithms coming up, you know. So if people want to get into drug discovery, maybe they should go into computer science, right? But also yeah. we have this this trouble with 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 the data and and data curation and, mm -hmm. and generating new data. So if you want to go into drug discovery, maybe becoming a careful scientist is also a route to go, right? And I think this is uh you know this is in your article in the yeah uh, exactly uh, under the microscope the uh, the protein society uh, uh, webpage. Um, and, and I guess, you know, what, what prompted you to write that? Like, it, it's a very great opinion piece where you show how some protein engineers do some amazing work to advance drug discovery, but not all protein engineers are in drug discovery. And, you know, what does it mean to be a good you know person in drug discovery with say a protein engineering background? Yeah. And I think like, so now I understand your question better. So, um, okay. So. What, what prompted me to write that is, you know, in academia, and we, we touched on this already, what you learn is how to be a very deep expert in a very narrow area of study. And, and there's all sorts of good things about that. But I think it's, there's a couple of things that you have to keep in mind. You can't be an expert in everything, especially in drug discovery, because there's a hundred disciplines that go into making a molecule to be an actual drug that you want to put into people, right? So there's two aspects of becoming a good drug hunter other than your own area of expertise. One is having at least um, not a deep knowledge, but a, but a sort of shallow but good enough knowledge of what other people do, what other disciplines do in drug discovery so that you can be conversant 
enough to have a good debate about what's the right thing for the team here, you know? Mm-hmm. To your point, it's like, you know, when you're in academia, you get very, very, you know, uh, uh, expert in a very narrow field. And someone said, you, be, you you learn more and more about less and less until you learn, you know, absolutely everything about nothing. So especially with AI, I've had a lot of people come to me, you know, um, when they're looking for a new a transition and whatever their role is. And they're like, Benita, I think my next role, I definitely want to get into AI. And this could be like a pharmacologist chatting with me. It could be a protein engineer. It could be a computational person who's more in the classic biophysical world. And they're like, oh, I need to do ML now. Uh, I could even be the DMPK person. They're like, and everybody wants to get into AI these days because they know it's, it's the buzz, right? And we, yeah. We're true believers too, so we're not discouraging them. Mm-hmm. But you don't need, like it surely it helps to learn a little bit of Python scripting and, and you know, that helps you get conversant. But you don't need to start taking computer science classes. What you need to do is be confident in your own area of deep expertise, but then start thinking about it differently. Don't think about it from your perspective as the expert in whatever it is, protein engineering, crystallography, you know, classical biophysical modeling, whatever it is. Think about it as like if I was on in the other person's shoes on the team, on the drug discovery team, in the startup team, in the AI team, what would I ask myself, you know, to, to contribute? And if you can kind of put yourself in the other disciplines shoes that much, then you will become like the most wanted person on every team and in every job. And I think that gets maybe back to our, our, when you're collecting data points, right? You want to collect data points for for wide consumption, right? Mm -hmm. Not just your own field of expertise. That may, you know, encourage you when you know about what other people do. And when you're collecting your data points, you also think about how they're going to be distributed to people outside your field of expertise. Yeah. So that's yes. how you, how do you transfer the data? And, you know, you, you can come up with very, very complicated uh, measurements for something and, you know, even communicating with humans and the machine, a very, very complicated measurement and, and demonstration of a physical effect may be nice, but difficult to translate to other people. Whereas if you somehow take, you know, the s- same sort of result and, and, you know, display the results or present the results in a different way that's easier for people to interpret, perhaps easier for the machine to interpret eventually. That's a way of, um, I guess, taking your field of expertise and trying to working towards deriving data points for machine learning. And, I mean, and which is kind of external human consumption as well. Like give me a data point that anyone could understand. Right. So are we, are we saying perhaps then just to connect you back to my original question that uh, in the startup space, it's better to be a generalist versus a specialist. All right, now you're putting me on the spot. No, <laughs> well, I, but I, I, I don't mean to do that in a. I, I don't no, mean I'm... to. I don't mean to do that. It, it's just oh. a, a a genuine question about yeah. um about the. So it really was motivated by a slide I saw at a presentation at an ACS a couple of years ago, where someone described their own group and the group that they were building. And they were saying, you know, historically people in computational roles in drug discovery would have had some training in the physical sciences, the natural sciences, and maybe some mathematics. And now as we've gotten into a much more sort of algorithmic 
artificial intelligence, machine learning informed environment, now we're seeing an intersection of statistics and mathematics and, and computer science and natural sciences. And really, is, is it enough to be sort of generally reasonable in most of those things? Or is there still a benefit in being a specialist and then, then developing your generalist chops? I'm just generally curious, that's all. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a great question. I was just teasing when I said you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> no, it's you, a very you, good question. You'd I, already uh, told me about how much hair you have, Vanita, and this had already. I was like, Vanita's just pushing my buttons now about how much hair she has. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's all gray. <laughs> well, at least you have it. I take gray hair over no hair. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, but let me answer your question. I, I, and I'll try not to sound self-contradictory here. I think you need you need to lean into your expertise, right? This is what we went to grad school for, did the postdoc, you know, did all of those, you know, the entry level in, in drug discovery. You have to lean into the expertise because sometimes it feels like, oh, it's not that special. It's special, you know. Mm -hmm. Your own expertise is rare because it feels like sometimes it's not because we surround ourselves with similar experts and then we're like, oh, we're not, trust me, it's special. And, and so you have to lean into that and don't become a generalist, but lean into your speciality with the, the general environment in mind. So make sure that you contextualize your expertise. Mm -hmm. And for that, I think what people think often is that, oh, now I got to learn how to be a programmer in order to understand these machine learning scientists. And what you don't, you know, you just need to have human conversations with them. Mm -hmm. And you need to be confident about your own expertise because they may not realize that, you know, understanding the physics of these interactions, even if they only understand it as the human and they don't directly bake it into the machine learning algorithm, it will make them they will make the algorithms better, you know? So you, you, you have to be able to make those connections. You do need to understand the other people, the other disciplines well enough. But if you try to become a generalist, I think you're going to be messing, messing the whole thing up because you'll be leaving value on the table of your own expertise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I love that answer so much. <laughs> I was, uh, I really was, I've, I've, I've always thought it was very important for, it doesn't matter what you're doing in what field, to be able to contextualize it for the bigger picture, right? Like why are you spending yeah. the, the finite time you have on this planet? And how can you tell me in, in 15 seconds why that's important to you? And it doesn't have to be ground shakingly important. Like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, invent a flying car or something stupid like that. It literally is like, why are you doing this? I think, again, for me, it goes back yeah. to that attention piece. It goes back to like, why are you spending your time in this way? And why should I care? Yeah. Um, so I love that answer. Yeah. And just, just, I mean, it's a bit awkward because Chris is on the call, but if you, if you happen to get an email later from, you know, D Thompson at chemcomber.com, who's, you know, look for a new role. I just, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Artificial <laughs> intelligence, you know, buzzy. Dave has then drug just... discovery expertise. Um, <laughs> he comes cheap. He does. Exactly. Uh, he, uh, he knows enough to be dangerous. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, no, that was a fabulous. Thank you. I really yeah. appreciate you yeah. kind of expanding on that. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're we're sort of coming to our end here. I know uh, we've got to get on with our other uh, activities for the day. Thank you very much, Vanita, for uh, coming on and, and talking with us about these uh, thoughts. That was very good. Um, any parting words for the audience? 
I don't know. Thank you guys, first of all, so much for having me. I had a, I had a really great time chatting with you. And I mean, I think my parting words are, you know, humans aren't obsolete yet, especially not the scientists. So I think those of us who are AI enthusiasts, we'll, we're getting there, but it's going to get there with our help as experts in the sciences. So thank you guys so much. Definitely. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Vanita. Have a good day, everyone. Bye yeah. for now. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Under the Surface. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms so you don't miss an upcoming episode. Enjoying our podcast? Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have topics or speaker suggestions for future episodes? Send an email to podcast at chemcom.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at chemcom.com. Until then, keep exploring, keep learning, and keep loving the science. Signing off.